To quote Frank Herbert and Dune, things persist in not being what they seem. Because we're about to talk about the second part. The second part being Muad'Dib. Things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem. Uh, so before we forget, because I know we're both excited to talk about this. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club Deep Cut. Dune Edition. Uh, So if the entire first book was dedicated to introducing the players, um, giving us a character sheet for each player, Mm -hmm. and establishing the world in which we're operating, the level of intensity and subtlety and nuance that we're working with, the entire second book is where do all of our key players end up? And more... A lot of it is more uh, exposition and depth on the Fremen and the Harkonnens. It might might as well be called Meet the Fremen. Book two, Meet the Fremen. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because we're we're out of... um, What's the city they start in? Arakeen. Yeah, we're out of Arakeen. We're no longer in the palace. We are... We're on the streets. And by the streets, I mean out in the desert. And... And the actors on this stage have narrowed down to the Fremen and the Harkonnens. Yeah. Yep. And the political maneuverings of all of them, including the Fremen, who we find out are not as um, passive in what is happening as they at first seem. Barbarous, as primitive. Yes. As implied. It's possible they may foster this perception hmm. because it acts as a kind of deflection shield to quote them. count fenring hmm. oh my god that whole section was so painful it's hard to read it's hard to read and then he mentions that their humming is part of a language like they have a secret language a, a humming language mm-hmm. but just listening to okay if you don't know what we're talking about you should have read the book first of all but count fenring and his wife who is a bene Gesserit, his wife, even though Count Fenrig is a eunuch, which we talk about like every time. They're like, Count Fenrig? Oh, you mean the eunuch guy? Oh, yeah, that guy? Well, his wife and him go to Gidi Prime and they're having a conversation with the Baron. And it's literally like, oh, um, hello. How are you, Count? It's hard to read. Um, I'm, that's probably why no one's ever adapted him in that way because it's like, it's like talking to Morla, the ancient one. And I think it's partly, Mm. I think he uses it partly to make him seem like not as cunning as he actually is. I don't know because every other time we see him, he talks like that a little, but definitely not like he does in this one. And it is pages and pages of, ah, he might as well be a Skeksy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, hello, Doak. God, it's annoying. It's it's hard. It's okay. Well, that's a tangent. We're not there yet, because poor Paul and his mom are stuck in this tent. They're waiting for Duke Duncan Idaho to come and rescue them. Uh, they already found Duncan. No, Duncan died. Well, Duncan. No. I put I pulled a page out of your book and I looked it up. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I skimmed through book two in preparation for this and part of it was a scene where he mentions Duncan was with us in the yeah, vision. No sign of Duncan yet? None. Right, that's where we start off because we ended book one, they're crashed in the desert. They're crashed in the desert and they see a um, a thopter coming for them. Right. and Which it turns out has Duncan in it. And so Duncan gave them, well they had all the stuff they needed but they, Duncan was like, okay, set up your still tent you know, get your still suits on, put on your still shoes, put on your still hat, all the still things, and hang out right here. I'm going to be back. And so they've been waiting. And Jessica says, how long did Duncan say to wait before we should leave because he'd have been compromised? And yeah. Paul says, this long. Yeah. Because <laughs> Paul is like, baby Paul is gone. And now we're Paul. The Duke. The Duke. Um, because his dad's dead, he's the Duke. And they end up leaving the tent. He gets the tent out. They have these, like, this technology to, like, static hold the sand in place while he pulls stuff out. Yeah, you... It makes the sand rigid. Yeah. Because they get buried in a storm. And then they end up trying to escape, but Duncan finds them again. Duncan with Liette. Yeah, and as they're all packing up, yeah. To um to leave because Duncan implied if he wasn't back by now, it means he was captured. Right. And he could hold out from torture for this long. And so Paul's like, All right, he's not back. That Let's means go. he was he was caught. Yeah. He's being tortured right now, and right about now is when he would give in and reveal our location. So yeah. we gotta go. Yeah, so really this whole book two, Muad'Dib, is like, here's all the characters, here's what happened to them. So Liette, we meet, and then they, he tries to help them, and then is immediately caught. And so they escape with the help of Liette, and Duncan dies at the same time that Liette is caught. Okay, so check. Duncan at least is visibly mortally wounded, uh, presumed dead. Liette is caught. Check. The Duke is dead. Check. Paul long and live the Duke. Long live the Duke. Paul and Lady Jessica are on the run. We uh, also they get in the thopter that was in the yes. ecological f- facility. Right. It was hidden there for this purpose, and they end up flying into the storm. Liette's like, go directly into the storm. Yeah. It's your only He's like, hope. Fly of high them. over it, glide down through it. Yeah, we've done this, stealing thopters from the Harkonnens, right. uh, and they don't think it's possible. Right, and then woven in through all of this. Is, um, oh my God, you guys, did you know how badass the Fremen are? Because when we go to talk to Tufer, Tufer has like 20 men left of his entire, his entire group of men, 300 or more men. He has like 20 left because the Sardaukar are so tough. And then this Fremen guy shows up and he's like, oh, sup guys, we're, we're here to help. Maybe, I don't know, like let's negotiate. This is the part where they're talking about water, like 
No, no. This is a water question. Yeah, this is a really good kind of explication of the completely different viewpoint of uh, the most important resources in the group. Right. Where Tufer is like, my people are my most important resource. Yeah. And the Fremen guy is like, water is the most important resource. Water is, yeah. Your men should appreciate when and recognize and be able to decide when their water needs to go back to the tribe. Yeah. Oh, you have wounded? Okay, well, let's go take care of them and then we can get going. Who can carry all of their water? And Tufer's like, no, no, I need help with my wounded. And he's like, no, this is a water question. Is it time for them to give up their water? Kind of sounds like it is. And so they're finally Tufer catches on that like, oh, oh, okay. He's talking about, we're not equivocating. He's having one conversation. I'm having another conversation. And they finally get together. And he's like, no, I owe my water to the Duke. And he's like, oh, your water does not belong to you. That is a different matter. Okay. So that's a different, that's a whole other ballgame. Let's change up how we're talking about this. <laughs> so so Thufir's like, oh, so you're going to help us? And he's like, uh, yeah, did I fucking stutter? Yeah. He's like, <laughs> I said. It was in, I said, this is a water question. Okay. Yeah. Your water belongs to the Duke. Okay. Uh, that answers all of your questions. Yeah. Without actually answering. Yeah. Your, your water questions. is not your own. You owe your water to somebody else. Well, then it is my, I am honor bound to get your water to the guy who owns it. Right. Especially given that Liette had told the Fremen to cooperate with the Atreides. Yes. And this is when he's talking about the Sardaukar. And they're like, well, have you encountered any Sardaukar? And he was like, oh, those dudes? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's been great. We're having an awesome time yeah. fighting the Sardaukar. It's like, wow, they're really they're really good fighters. Yeah. It's been, this has been like this has really been, entertaining. Yeah. They killed a couple of us, but nah, they were kind of dumb anyway. So it's fine. Like, they, you know, any It was reason, a bit of a challenge. But uh, mm, it's all right. Yeah. We can handle it. Oh, yeah. This. We killed the starter car. Yeah, he's like, like I, it's hard. I, what, like it's hard? I killed like 10 on the way here. And Thufer's like, oh, shit. We really did. We, we guessed it right. They are desert power. Because the starter car, who are the most feared force in the entire world, in the entire galaxy, Galaxy, uh, the Fremen are like, oh, yeah, those dudes, <laughs> whatever. No problem. Um, but then they get... They get attacked. And this is when Tufer gets kidnapped, um, taken prisoner by the Harkonnen. Everybody else dies. Tufer gets taken prisoner. And Tufer's ultimate destination is he's going to work with the Harkonnens. And we get kind of a, a discussion with the Baron where he's like, okay, give Tufer this poison. Don't tell him. Feed him the antidote every day. And that way, if he ever betrays us, he dies sold easy he's like i needed a mentat twofers a mentat this sounds like a like a great idea let's do this and twofer is really doing this because he believes that the lady jessica betrayed the atreides and so he is hoping that he will be able to get revenge for the atreides and his desire for revenge outweighs his hatred of the harkonnens because everybody that the Duke surrounded himself with have a history with the Harkonnens. Tufer does. Gurney does. All of them do. And then we go to Gurney because Gurney, Gurney got abandoned. I mean, nobody helped Gurney out. Gurney had to help himself out. And he's gotten out. And now he goes and talks to the smugglers. Yeah, Gurney had been the one that went 
and made contact with the smugglers. Anyway, yeah. And brought the one smuggler to the the big complicated dinner. Dinner, yeah. The dinner scene. And so he knows this guy because his he knew his dad. And this guy's dad died in the attack. But we have a whole, like, all right, um, you know, my loyalty is with, like, my people and my money and my company. And if you can get behind that Gurney Halleck, you're, you can come and work with me. You're a cool dude. I like you. You can come work for us if you want to. We'll protect you. We'll help you. And he's like, just so you know, eventually I'm going to use this as a way to, like, kill the Baron. And the... The smuggler's like, that sounds like your business. I'm not really interested in it. As long as you're working for me while you're working for me, sold. So now we know where Tufer goes. We know where Gurney goes. We know what happened to Duncan, Idaho. And really the only people that we have to sort of... And we know what happened to Yui. Yeah, well, we know what happened to Yui. And we know what happened to the Duke. So the only players in the game that are left is Jessica and Paul, who are currently presumed missing. And then we go and talk to the Baron Harkonnen a lot. For the whole first section, we got a little bit of Baron. We get a lot of Baron in the in book two, more so even than in book three. And the Baron, we're really talking about like his ultimate goal. What is he trying to achieve? He had, he had Dune. He voluntarily relinquished Dune in order to move Leto out of his place of power so right. that he could crush him. And in cooperation with the in emperor, hoping I think that the that the cooperation with the emperor would give him leverage over the emperor. Right, because the biggest the Landsrad has enough authority, enough clout that if they all go together, they could take the emperor down. Right, so he can't have them rallying against him. Right, and so Shaddam wants to take out Leto because Leto has the, a chance of uniting the Lonsrod and taking him down. Right. So Shaddam wants Leto taken out. The Baron's willing to get his hands dirty. And the Baron wants Leto taken out also. Yeah. Because they have this canly feud vendetta thing. And so they decide to work together. So the... So Shaddam commits like huge numbers of Sardaukar, which are exclusively imperial Troops. combat resources yes. that are identifiable, easily identifiable. If they wear their uniforms. If they wear their uniforms. Yeah. Or if you pay attention. And in the way they fight. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but the Lanzrod the convention, the great convention, um, would rebel against Shaddam if they found out Shaddam was committing re like Sardaukar yeah, if he was to attack one of them. Actively working against one of the houses. And so they explain that that's the greatest fear of each great house yeah. is that Shaddam will send Sardaukar against each of them individually and wipe them out. And if they find out that Shaddam did that, that would be the end for Shaddam. Yeah. So that's the leverage that Harkonnen gets on Shaddam is that... But he thinks, yeah. That he thinks is like, oh, I can blackmail him with this. Yeah. It'll... Because if he doesn't go along with what I want to do, I will let everybody else in the great houses know that Shaddam 
gave me, you know, 10 legions of Sardaukar yeah. to take out Atreides. Right. And so what we see a lot in this is the political maneuvering around that. Because that and when Count Fenrig comes to see him on Gaty Prime, that's what the Baron wants to talk about. He's like, so what's the, what's the Emperor going to give me to keep me silent? And Count Fenrig's like, silence about what? What happened? What, what would you talk about, Baron? And the Baron's like, you know, the Sardaukar that he gave me. And the Count's like, oh, that's a horrible accusation. I can't believe you would say I, something like that. I mm, can't believe you would say something like that. <laughs> and the the Baron is like, shit. Because he got played. Yeah, and he didn't... He didn't prepare by, I guess, like taking evidence, uh, yeah. verifiable evidence that he could prove to everybody right. that the emperor gave him Sardaukar. Right. So now the Baron's like, well, shit. Well, shit. And he's actually in a far more precarious position than he was before because he worked against a, another member of the Landsrod and he got away with it. And now nobody is going to be. Like, nobody's going to trust him at all. Right. For with any reason. One of the things, one of his objectives with this whole strategy was to intimidate the other great houses. Yeah. So that they wouldn't act against him. Okay. It worked. But he also doesn't have leverage over Shaddam. Right. So now he's isolated himself. He's ostracized himself from the rest of the great houses. And now the emperor has some reason to take out the baron, too. Right. Because the baron is the only one that knows that there were, like, about the Sardaukar agreement. Yeah. And literally, the only reason nobody has ever acted against the baron until this point is because of his control over the spice. Because he who controls the spice controls the universe and at the moment the baron controls the spice but only if he can keep it coming from arrakis in the quantities that everyone wants it coming off of arrakis and right now uh it's not everything's in shambles he needs to reestablish order and like start up the spice flow as soon as possible because it cost like 50 years of the full output of Arrakis. Yeah. To get that many Sardaukar troops to the planet. Yeah. Because the guild charges exorbitantly higher rates for troop transport versus like regular transport. Right. Because it's a way of controlling the amount of conflict in the universe, in everything that happens. But... Yeah, it, this was an exorbitantly expensive venture to get Leto out of the way. And they do, I mean, the Baron really thought he was going to benefit more from this. And now he has to maneuver things so that he still will. Right. So now that this gambit is done, the Baron needs to get back right away, squeezing as much money out of Arrakis as possible. Right. And he has a two-prong two plan for that, which I think is really interesting. Yes, this is where we start to see a lot of his cunning and depth as a character. Yeah. Preparing and securing his legacy. Right, because he has Raban, who everybody calls the Beast Raban. We get no context for this. They're just like, oh, you mean the Beast Raban? 
And they do describe him a little bit as <clears throat> similar in form to the Baron. Yeah. In that uh, he's fat. Yes, he is. Yes. And he's not pretty. Right. Yeah, um, which is why we're supposed to be like, ooh, you can tell he's a bad guy. Because he's ugly. Okay. I mean, I think it's important at this moment to pause and address some of the 1960s-ness of this book. Uh, Yes, it's very binary. Uh, We're we're really only talking in masculine and feminine terms. We're not talking on a spectrum. Uh, This is extremely whitewashed. Everybody. Well, okay. Let's talk about the whole white savior narrative. Right. This book is a white savior narrative. Yes, at 100%. But it is a white savior narrative that is a critique of white savior narrative. Yeah, it's a subversion of the trope. And the subversion of that trope is, oh yeah, here's what up front looks like a white savior narrative. But in the rest of the series, like I guess Dune the first book is a yeah. white savior story. Right. But the series of the six books completely undermines it. Yeah. It's a, here's this white savior narrative that results in catastrophe. In catastrophe. Yeah. And really just that the white savior narrative is just that. It's a story that everyone is told by the missionary protectiva because that way they always have a role to fill. That the only reason this white savior is possible is because of brainwashing of the culture. Because of the spread of a invented religion that would allow anyone coming onto the planet that had enough knowledge of what was seeded on this planet to take power. Right. Manipulation yeah, at it's a, a societal level. Right. The only reason this, the white savior exists is because of manipulation of the society at a very granular level. Great. Thank you, Frank Herbert, because this really could have just been, he's a hero. You can tell he's a hero because he's fulfilling all of these prophecies. Instead, he's like, yeah, he's fulfilling these prophecies, but that in and of itself is a malicious action. Because he is using deliberate manipulation of these people to deliberately manipulate these people to use them for his own ends. He becomes their savior figure. He becomes their messiah. He becomes their prophet. So that they will throw themselves at the Harkonnen for him. Right. And to Paul's credit, he's not like happy about it. But does he do it anyway? Yeah. Yep. yep he yep. does it anyway. Um, who's the real bad guy? And he, he recognizes very early. Okay. In this whole story. Yeah. Paul effectively is a pawn. Yeah. He recognizes fairly early, I think in this section, in book two of Dune, that the jihad is almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. And the jihad is a direct consequence of the mythology planted by the Missionaria Protectiva. It is the inevitable emergent outcome of the kind of mythology that they planted here. Yes. And Paul recognizes that if he dies here, uh, 
it's still going to happen. Right. If he lives here, it's still, still going to happen. Yep. And so the only, I guess, the, to his credit, and you know, as a pawn in this whole story, he does his best with the amount of agency that he has to get as much wiggle room in the in, the inevitable, inevitable outcome, outcome yeah. to mitigate the horror of it as much as possible. Right. He says it has to be fast and swift to minimize casualties. That's yep. the best he can do is he can make it so, so precipitous and so brutal that it happens immediately, any, it happens effectively, and then it's yeah. finished. And that so we don't. Any conflict, any conflict where people are going to be hurt, he shows up, his people show up with such overwhelming force that they there are a minimum of casualties and then immediate surrender. Yeah. And, you know, just like Canley is designed to minimize danger to bystanders. Yeah. That's basically Paul's goal with the whole jihad thing that happens in the next few books. Yeah. Yep. And so we talked about the two-pronged thing that Baron Harkonnen is trying to manipulate here. And one of those is the Beast Raban. And so he's going to send the Beast Raban to Arrakis to squeeze as much as can possibly be squeezed. He's supposed to terrorize the population. He get, basically, get, knowing he has a tendency towards violence, he gives him free reign. He doesn't tacitly, he doesn't explicitly tell him to torture the population. So that he can maintain actual deniability. Right, because you have to maintain actual deniability. But he tacitly tells him, no reins. You do what you want. You have to meet your quotas. You meet the quota. I don't care what you do as long as you meet the quota. And this plan was always his plan yeah. because he knows that a populace that admires its leader is easier to control right than one that you're controlling with fear right there's fear but then there's also fear and respect right and so he wants long term to have arrakis led by somebody who the people don't actively hate and despise to their core right so he was going to give Arrakis as a fief, whatever, yeah. to Piter. And then he was going to let Piter grind them down for a while and then send in... Bade. His favorite, favorite nephew. Yeah, Bade Raul. His chosen successor. His Nah Baron. Yeah. Uh, and we meet more of Fade. We, don't, we get a little bit of a bond. Mostly it's the Baron being like, are you... Were you dropped at birth? Like, what is wrong with you? Right. We get the scenes with the Baron and Raban, and he's kind of like giving, dropping a bunch of hints about yeah. his plans and seeing if Raban, Raban can pick can, up what he's dropping out. Yeah. And, and come to some conclusions. Right. And he's not. He's absolutely yeah, not. No, no. Raban's like, okay, sounds good. And he's like, no, 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 no. Did you get what else out? Don't make me say it. Don't make me say the quiet part out loud. And this is the part where he's like, I'm surrounded by idiots. If I threw, they're such chickens. If I threw out sand I, and told them it was green, they'd peck at it. He's like, I, why am I surrounded by idiots? I mean, is the Baron always the smartest person in the room? Maybe not. 
Does the Baron always hmm. believe he is the smartest person in the room? Yes. Is he the smartest person in the room? Most of the time. Most of the time. But is that because he only lets stupid people into the room? It's That's, that's or a very good observation. also, most of the time, he's the only person in the room. Right. Because he's a lonely person. Because he's driven everybody else away. Which is a a side effect of being like literally a psychopath. Right. Or I guess he's a sociopath. He's a sociopath. He can, yeah. he can uh, mask a bit. Right. Whereas in contrast, the Duke surrounds himself with people that in their area of expertise are way more skilled than he is. Yeah. And he trusts them. Yes. And he's able to accomplish a lot more than the Baron. Yeah. With less work. Which is very much what the Duke, what Duke Paul emulates. Right. But Fade, this is where Fade has that battle with the slave. Where he's supposed to be drugged. He's supposed to have gotten that drug that turns his skin orange. So that he'll be like easy to beat. Make him a berserker. Yeah. Um, this is like a... This is a old Roman Colosseum style thing where he's supposed to be killing his hundredth slave in the arena. To prove his prowess as a leader. Right. Except this guy's drugged. The game's rigged. The game is rigged. The, the points are made up and the game doesn't matter. Um, except this guy is not drugged and Fade knows it. And he's been given a shield, but the shield only works on part of his body. And he has been given a code word. He's been like programmed with a code word that will make him hesitate just in case. Um, and so he fights this guy. And it's kind of metaphorical where it's like they think they're fighting an opponent who they have crippled and that it will make the victory easy. But he didn't realize the strength of the loyalty that the Atreides command. The strength of the human spirit. Because this guy is an Atreides soldier, and he's literally carved, he's carved the Atreides symbol into his skin. Or the yeah. eagle. I think it's a hawk. Um, he is, he's already, he's carved it into his skin with a knife. And so Fade so is like. So that everybody will know who he is. Yeah. So Fade's like, oh shit, I didn't realize that. that so this is hardcore. a little bit like they thought they'd won. They really thought victory was absolutely assured. But is it? Is it possible for absolute loyalty and true, true devotion to overcome the rigged game? That's the question this is posing to us as the reader for the rest of the, for the rest of everything. And this is also a moment for Count Fenrig's wife to seduce Fade Rautha and get a baby out of it. So at least they'll have that bloodline if they need it. Right. Because the Bene Gesserit recognize that, oh, shit. Yeah. Paul, like Duke Leto was the bloodline we needed to preserve. We had the, the Harkonnen bloodline and the Atreides bloodline. And these two houses are yeah. both like the most powerful of the great houses. And is that because... The leaders of these houses are the culmination of thousands of years of this selective breeding program to yeah. make like a superhuman. Right. Maybe. Uh, 
But either way, we have these two bloodlines that you know, are the most powerful houses because they are so powerful and so competent. They're safe. Right. Nobody's going to kill them. So the Bene Gesserit are like, okay, cool. We got these two bloodlines. Now we just need to connect these two bloodlines. Right. Okay. We're doing good. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jessica had a son. Well, shit, that that mixes up our plan a little bit, but we can work with this. Uh, It'll just delay it by one generation. Yeah, it's fine. We just need to get a daughter on the Harkonnen side, and then then we can get this back together. Yeah, which it. But then Paul is assumed dead. Yeah, and so the Bene Gesserit are like, "Well, shit! If the Atreides, you know, probably considered more powerful than the Harkonnens." If the Atreides can be wiped out like this, and that was, you know, half of our entire, like, uh, breeding line that's required for this whole program to work. What about the Harkonnens? Yeah, we need to cash this. How are we We need a backup. Yes, we need a backup. We need a backup. We didn't do that for the other ones. That's why Fenring is here. Yeah. Yeah, he's here to talk to the Baron and... Let him know that the the um, emperor still thinks he's pretty much an insect insect that should be squished under his boot because the baron really thought now they were going to be on an equal playing field. And sorry, psych, not fucking happening. And also to get a little bit of a little bit of Harkonnen DNA so we can keep that a if we need it for sample. later. Which it now falls on me to mention that the lady Jessica is the Baron Harkonnen's daughter. And the Baron, the which Bene Gesserit makes, know this. Which makes Paul his grandson. Yes. So if Paul had been a woman and had been married to Fade Raoutha, that would have been two first cousins marrying each other. But it, I think their intention there was a concentration. I, yeah. Line. I mean, I guess. I'm just pointing yeah. out. That's, a, that's awfully close. Which they mention. They mentioned that sometimes the the reason that the Bene Gesserit don't know who they belong, who their parents are, is because they may be asked to partner with someone who is directly related to them, and they don't want that to create any cognitive dissonance. So the easiest way to right. get around that they is need to, to just concentrate not know. the genetic line. Sometimes you have to. Yeah, sometimes you got to do, do a, little a little incest. Yeah, if you want to move your eugenics program forward. Yeah. And now we finally get introduced to the Fremen as actual characters. We've had the nebulous Fremen. We've had the, we don't know where they live. We don't know how they live. We don't know how many of them there are. Oh, maybe there's only a few. Maybe there's millions. But now we're finally like, okay, here's a face. Now we're going to give the Fremen a face. And that first one that we meet, really, is Stilgar. And as much as I love Gurney Halleck, I think I love Stilgar more. Yeah. Because Stilgar is such a good, noble, nuanced character. And the whole Fremen culture is just the antithesis of the Lansrad culture. Because as much as it's about subtlety there and subterfuge and manipulation, here it is like, we don't have time for that. Wasting your breath wastes water. So let's just say what we mean. 
because and it's the Fremen culture is almost a refinement of what Duke Leto Atreides was raising Paul to be. Right. Which is just super honorable, super practical. Right. And hyper competent. Right. Whereas the entire rest of the like elite society in this galaxy is all about like selfish manipulation of everyone else for your own benefit right and lots of hedonism and just flaunting your riches duke leto wanted to do something different yeah your water belongs to the tribe right yeah and so i think that's why paul was such a like good fit with the fremen right is because most of the underlying values between the atreides household and the fremen culture are exactly the same right it's just the practices that are different right we don't we don't do poison because if i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna kill you to your face right. i'm gonna call you out and we're gonna do this and so paul doesn't have to completely reform large sections of his personality right to fit in with the fremen and get the gist of what's going on he already does he already and he gets it immediately he is totally immersed, totally absorbing all 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 at once right away because they they crash because they fly through the they end up going above the storm where the the wind is still high, but the particles are so fine they can't really and the pressure is so low. Yeah. And so they crash and they end up trying to just travel. They're just trying to get outside the belt where the Harkonnen patrols might be. And they end up falling in with a group of Fremen. And this is uh, Siege Tabir. Isn't yeah. it Tabir? Is, Tabir or Tabir. Yeah, is the one that Stilgar is the head of. So they're kind of autonomous groups of Fremen. And they are all in like a loose coalition. coalition. Kind of like the Iroquois nation used to be. So when, before we came here, the native tribes in North America were part Many of them were part of like a group. They were autonomous tribes, but they were part of the Iroquois. But they were cooperative. Yeah, they were cooperative. Yeah. So that's what we, we have cooperative, but autonomous tribes. Semi nomadic groups. Yeah. yeah. And Stilgar is the leader of this one. And immediately, Stilgar's like, nah, this, let's just kill them and take their water. Well, he says, the boy, I made a promise to Liette. Yes. To Liette. I would keep the boy. But. She's too old to learn our ways. She will just slow us down and hold us back. Yeah. And so the Lady Jessica's like, oh, you thought. You thought. And so she um, bests Stilgar immediately. In hand-to-hand -hand combat. Yeah. While Paul's like, peace! And he dips. He, like, knocks over Jamis, Jamis, Jamis and takes his gun. It's really a gun. And then he heads yeah. up, and he's, like, waiting above, like, sniper position. For his mom to work this out. Yeah. And then we have our first, like, okay, all right, this is a fulcrum moment. Everything hinges on this moment. If Lady Jessica cannot talk her way out of this, she's going to die and Paul will be all alone. And Paul doesn't know enough about the Missionaria Protectiva to make use of it. Yeah. And, you know, secure his position. Right. So I got to be the one that talks my way through this. 
And so she does. She convinces him. She's like, did you like how I did that? I could teach you all how to do that. The weirding way. (laughs) I could teach you the weirding way. And they're like, okay, yeah, it's cool. Why didn't you just lead with that? You could have just said, I'm a total badass. And we would have been like, fuck yes. And let you join the let you join the group. Right. Right. From his perspective, he's like, ah, she doesn't have anything of value to add yeah. to our to our siege. So, you know, uh, get rid of her. Bye, Felicia. And yeah, the boy, I made a promise and he shows potential. That's all right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I, I can I can put up with that amount of inconvenience. But really all she had to do is explain the value that she could bring. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that's all you, like, I was only, it's not personal. Right. Jessica, I was only going to have you killed and take your water uh, for practical reasons. Right. You just had to lead with the fact that but you if were, you, like, cool. I if mean, you said, on. hey, I can teach you how to fight in a way that will make you literally unstoppable. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So. You come along too. I can put up with the inconvenience of, you know, this... Yeah, we can teach Two you the way woman. of the sand if you can teach us this way of the Yeah, of now, the, now there's an exchange of value for value. Right, which we're, they're like, hell yeah. Oh, go ahead, son, you can come down. And Paul doesn't move. And finally Jessica's like, it's okay, Paul, you can come down. And that's when he comes down. And we find out and that... And Chani's already snuck up on him. Yeah, we find out Chani's just been up there like, yeah, I wasn't going to let you kill anybody in my tribe. Sorry, son. And he's like, oh my God, Chani, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which she says, hot as I dreamed her. Yes. Just like, just like we led with, hey guys, yeah, I know you're just starting this story. Yui is the traitor. Yeah. Do with that what you will. We've also been leading with, oh yeah, Paul. Yeah. He's going to end up with Chani. Yeah. Chani and him, they're going to hook up. They're going to be an item. It's going to be a like real substantial relationship. Yeah. And, but they haven't met yet. Right. And yep. so he sees her and he has literally years of these like prophetic dreams. He's known her. And he just had that awakening moment where he sees like the landscape of the future and all of the time that he would spend with Chani and how important she would be to him personally and to the whole tribe and then he sees her and he's like whoa and Chani's like who's this fucking skinny kid I know what's up what's up man boy that's what they, they're like what's up boy man city boy city boy you think you're gonna get with this nice try yeah right and then we cut to Liette because poor Liette has um been captured this is uh really good scene yeah and the harkonnen baron harkonnen's like well he worked with the atreides we gotta kill him and they were like well you can't kill him because he he like he works for the emperor he doesn't work right. for us of course he cooperated with the atreides because yeah. he was in charge he was the overseer yeah for the handoff right uh, he was supposed to yeah. be cooperating we can't just kill him and the baron's like well we're not gonna kill him he's gonna have an accident he's going to accidentally go out into the deep desert without his still suit on obviously however that happens however that happened nudge nudge that's what's gonna happen and so they take him out there and he has this long 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 scene which really serves as both like world building and exposition this was a really elegant 
exposition dump. Yeah. Of him and and still building on who Liet is. Right, because we see his father. And there's more about his father in the appendices, but his father was an imperial an imperial a, a planetary uh, ecologist. Yeah, who came to this planet in an attempt to terraform it. Um and he ended up falling in with the Fremen. And he just talked so fucking much. They just kept him because nobody could get him to shut up long enough to tell him he wasn't welcome, basically. And so Liette is the product of this man and a Fremen woman. And so Liette is like um, seeing his father and his father is telling, like pontificating to us, the, the reader and to Liette about his plans and how Arrakis could be changed. And, and like a a really deep understanding of the culture of the Fremen. And we get a sense from later in the book and from the appendices that until, um, until Liet's dad came, I forget what his name was. The, we'll just call him Liet's dad. Liet's dad. Until Liet's dad came to Arrakis, the Fremen were just surviving and fighting the Harkonnens. And that was their, like, purpose in life. But Liet's dad gave them a vision. Pardot kinds. Pardot? Pardot. P-A-R-D-O-T. Okay. Pardot. Or maybe Pardo? Pardo. Pardo kinds. Yeah. Uh, um, there's a bunch of... Liet's dad. French references. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to say Pardo. Okay. Pardo. So Pardo came to Arrakis and he's like, I need to, you know, actually be out in the wild to get a better feel for what would have to be done to actually transform this world, to actually terraform this world. And the people who are there who would like get me access to that are the Fremen. So this is this Off is my purpose yeah. is to terraform this planet. And I'll just do whatever is necessary to achieve that. Yeah. I have to get in with the Fremen. Great. I will be a Fremen. And so he does. And he takes a Fremen wife. And he... Teaches them all kinds of stuff. He teaches them. He comes up with an entire new like written language uh, to help teach them about all the ecology stuff. About the moisture reclamation stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And and gives their entire culture a larger purpose. And that really like solidifies the entire Fremen culture. Yeah. And they've been living this way for 80 years now. Right. At least. Right. Because they were like, how long is this going to take? And he was like, oh, a couple hundred years. And they were like. At least. Okay. okay. Then we will teach our children how to do it too. Planting trees. In whose shade they will never sit. Exactly. And so Liette is kind of delirious because he's dehydrated. He's out in the middle of this desert. He ends up being out there without a still suit on. He's just hemorrhaging moisture. And he realizes he's on top of a pre-spice mass. Which we haven't even talked about yet. So this is another exposition that just gets cleverly woven into this. Right. Oh, what does a pre-spice mass mean? Right. Because Oh, it means it's about to explode. Right. We haven't discussed where the spice comes from. 
at all. It just exists on the surface of the sand. There's one line where Paul is questioning Liette when they're in the thopter yeah. with Leto and everybody. And <clears throat> just asking questions about the worms and everything. And he basically says, oh, so what's the connections between what's the connection between the worms and the spice? And Liette's like, shit, I can't. There's a. Oh, wow. Complex ecosystems have lots of interconnections. Yeah. That's. Couldn't say. Don't know. Yeah. We. I don't know. Bless the maker and his water. Bless a lot of the. It's like. A lot of the details are unknown. Yeah. And Paul's like, hmm, my mother's level of truth sense would say that's true, but I'm picking up some bullshit here. Yeah. There's some bullshit. There's some... What's he hiding? Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's it, though, up until this point. Yes, and then he's that's like, the only thing we like, hear about oh, the connection. Beneath me, the little makers are, like, running out of water, and they're, like, the fermentation of their waste and everything is getting ready to explode. It's getting ready to blow so that these little makers, the ones that survive, will swim off to become Shai Halud. And you're like, oh, Okay, so the worm, the spice is the worms. The worms are the spice. The there worms make the spice. There you go. Now you know. You didn't know. And thanks and to the this delusional the man, you now know. And the reason the spice shows up as patches on top of the sand is because it all starts down deep, whatever. We we don't get much explanation on that they, until they later. Have a they lay their eggs like long ago right. in a nest. Yeah. And, and the spice is there and then it all explodes upward. And when everything falls back down, the spice is on top. Yep. And that's where the spice patches come from. Right. And that's how Liette dies. So we get all this beautiful little exposition. This yeah, he gets really buried in the cool sand. Just deftly included exposition. And we get this really good line from Pardo. Uh, you read it just a minute ago. Oh, Yeah. Because he's talking about the boy. Why did you help the boy? He's like, well, because he's the Lisan Al-Gaib. He's the voice from the outer world. He will save us. And Pardo says, there is no more terrible disaster that could befall your people than for them to fall in the hands of a hero. Which is heavy foreshadowing. I mean, right there. Nail on the head. Pardo's that, like. That is the start you have of made a the mistake. Like, white savior critique. Yeah. That this whole story is. Yeah. There's literally nothing worse that could happen than for them to find their Messiah. Yep. So we'll just leave you with that. And then we move on. We go back. I mean, we, we were jumping around quite a bit because there's a lot of characters that we're juggling just consistently. But what's happening in Paul land right now is they have kind of, they've wormed their way into a temporary truce. They're not really a part of the group, but they're not, not a part of the group anymore. And this is when Jamis is like, uh, I invoke the right of Amtal. Like, because there's all this chatter yeah. amongst the Fremen about Paul and Jessica being the ones who are going to fulfill this prophecy. Right. And some people just really want to know, are you bullshitting us and yeah. manipulating us? Or are you actually the ones the prophecy speaks of? Yeah. And... Stilgar's like, let's wait until we get back home. We'll take care of all this ritual stuff. We'll take care of all the particulars when we get there. But 
spending time on it now is a distraction and the Harkonnens are on high alert. And we need to dip. And we need to GTFO. Yeah. But Jameis is a little hot-headed and impulsive. Yeah. And he he really needs to to make some headway on this uncertainty. Plus, he just got disarmed by this boy man. And so he's got to reclaim oh, yes. he's, his honor. Not only is he hot-headed and impulsive, it's he's an also honor proud. Yeah, it's an honor yeah. culture. So he's like, sorry, but um, you got to fight me now. And so Paul is like, um, all right. Okay. And he's having one of these like prescient visions and yeah. he's like Jessica sees him and she's like why he's so quiet what's wrong yeah is he, he's sifting he through futures is he worried about the outcome of this fight right. because he could totally take this guy no problem but uh what what was what, happening here and the she notices that her son seems to be in some distress but she can't go help him no because Stilgar's like, nope. Uh, she tries to use the voice and Stilgar's like, no fucking way. Yeah. Do it again. I'm, see what happens. I'm not a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, try that again. And like these 20 Fremen around you are all going to kill you at the same time. You won't be able to stop them. Right. Can you Can you enchant all of us at the same time? I don't fucking think so. And so Paul's like, it's fine, Mom. Like, I got this. It's cool. Like, I, I've seen how this ends. It's, it doesn't always end good for me, but it kind of mostly does. Well, he, so it's going to be fine. He, isn't a, he doesn't have a chance to communicate any of that. Right. He's just sulking around. He's, he's walking around really sullen, like, very inward focused. And then he just starts taking off his clothes. And she's like, well, crap. Here we go. Like, I've been working so hard to save him. And now... And all of this, like, ability and influence that I've cultivated to, you know, maintain this environment to keep my son alive. Yeah. I've lost it all. And I just hope that all the work that I've put into preparing him makes him capable of taking care of himself in right. this situation. Yep. I got just hope. Uh it, I mean, it works out. Although I do like the part where they're talking, where Paul mentions that, like, I'm actually not as good as this guy only because I have trained against fighting people wearing shields. Right. So my stabs are all like slow or delayed. I right. have to consciously force myself to move quickly. Every other part of the fighting, he's better than Jameis. Yeah. Because he's been trained by the best since he could walk. Yeah. But he has this reflex, this conditioning, so that when he stabs, he stabs slower. Right. And so that's his main disadvantage. And so there's this big dramatic fight, and Stilgar's like, why is Paul toying with him? Like, this, this, this is a vain exercise. Uh, I'm disappointed that Paul is so... Uh, like self-centered that he's just playing with Jameis and in a performative way to make himself look better. And Jessica's like, no, he's, he's never killed anyone before. Yeah. The hesitation that you're observing as him just playing with an inferior fighter 
he, it's hesitation because he doesn't want to kill this guy. Right. And he actually says, do you yield? And they're like, uh, what? Fucking yield? I think you misunderstand, And this Paul. is when Stilgar's like, guys, he doesn't know our ways. Like, he just got here. Okay? No, it ends with death. And so he does. He kills Jameis. And he is then entitled to his water, his wife, and his coffee service. <laughs> <laughs> Like, hot damn, I want to buy a nice enough coffee service that it becomes an heirloom item. Like, who's going to get mom's coffee service when she dies? And so they're going to, they extract the water from the body because the flesh belongs to the person, but the water belongs to the tribe. So they put him in whatever, dehydrator. And they're all kind of standing around. They put his, but like his belongings all in a pile. All of his belongings in a pile. And yeah. they're like, yeah, he was my friend. I'm going to take his boots and his shoes and that really nice knife I gave him that one time. And he's like, yeah, he was my friend. I'm going to take his. Well, one person stands up and does this. And then everybody looks at Paul. Yeah. And, Paul's and Paul like, doesn't do anything. And then the next person stands up and is like, I was a friend of Jameis. And... I'm going to take this belonging. And then everybody looks at Paul. <laughs> and Jessica is still kind of being held back. Yeah. She, like, if she goes up and tells him what to do, it would undermine his position. Right. So because he has now to he's just figured being... this out. He is on his own. He has to figure this out. And so he's finally like, okay, um, I was a friend of Jamis. And, and everybody's like, yay! You did it! And he's like, I'll take his balisette. Yep. And then he starts crying. And they're like, oh, he, he gives, gives water, water to, to the, the dead. dead. Oh, snap! He is the Lisan al-Gaib. Because they don't even cry. Because water is so precious. They clot immediately. They don't bleed. And they don't cry. And they all look like wrung out sponges. Yeah. We talk about that tons. His flesh is water fat. His flesh is like full of water. Don't worry. That'll end. Like right now you're only sweating because you have too much moisture in your body. Once you don't have enough moisture, your body will stop that sweating bullshit. You'll be well, fine. Well, you sweat inside the still suit. Right. Uh, but you don't, um, you don't do other things. Well, no, uh, Jessica refers to it as like, it feels like there is a like barrier of moisture between my skin and the still suit because I'm sweating so profusely. Mm-hmm. And Stilgar's like, oh, oh no, no, don't oh. worry. You're gonna that yeah. you that'll cut down. Like once you get a little bit more dehydrated, you'll be fine. Yeah. And so he gets these water tokens because he doesn't actually physically get his water, but he gets the, the right water's to the water. In like a reservoir. Right. So he gets the tokens and he goes to hand them to Chani. He's like, sorry, I don't know how to carry these yet because they. Weave oh right. Because yeah, she says, I'll teach you how to, you know, prepare them so that you can have have them on you and they won't jingle and give away your position right and so he gives he's like chani can you hold them in the meantime and everyone's like <gasps> oh snap oh snap and then again stilgar's like guys he just got here he has absolutely no idea he what he just did and then paul immediately realizes oh shit he, it's Paul's a courtship like, thing oh god that's like a I just asked her to marry me thing. Oh, so sorry. And then they take him down to like a moisture trap, like a reservoir where they have all of this water and they give him an exact measurement of how much water Jami's had. And then they, they put that in the reservoir and they're like, this is how much of his water of this water belongs to you. And they have like a water dipper. They have like someone whose specific job it is to like accurately measure that. Cause they know down to the like drama meat, drama, liter or whatever the exact amount deciliter i think yeah the exact amount of water that is in this and paul's like oh shit once again we have underestimated the fremen 
Right. And they they say basically, oh, yeah, this is just one of many of these reservoirs. Yeah, we have many upon many. We have like, you can't even conceive of how many of these we have all over the face of Arrakis because we are preparing to change the face of Arrakis. And then Paul's like, okay, all right, I've got to get in on this. And so they leave, and now it's Jessica's turn, because now Paul has become a member of the tribe. They ask him what his name is going to be, because he needs a tribe name. Yeah. And he's like, what's the name of that little mouse that I see hopping all over the place? Right, and so he doesn't know that the mouse is Muad'Dib yeah. at this point. He's just trying to think of a name. He doesn't know that, he knows that they're going to call him Muad'Dib. Yeah. But he doesn't know that that is going to be just his casual name, his Fremen name. Yeah. So he's just like, oh, I kind of like that mouse. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be the I'll be that. And they're like, oh, you mean Muad'Dib? And he's like, god damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I accidentally fulfilled the prophecy again. Shit. But that's his name, like his use name. But then he has And his I like how all name. the names have so much meaning. Like yeah. their culture is so steeped in mythological significance. Everything is an omen or everything is a symbol for something else. Yeah. It is the prophecy. Yeah. And then he has his in the siege name, his like my close friends. His private name. His private name. And that's Usul, which is the strength at the base of the pillar. He is the fulcrum on which everything tips. And that's his name. And he actually gives Chani a name. He calls her Sahaya. Sahaya. S I A H A Y A. And it's the um, like a desert stream. Like a, a stream in the desert. A, a sense of relief after a long journey. Yeah. And because, of course, they don't get together. We know it. We knew it from page one. They're going to get together. And then they go on a journey. Because now it's Jessica's turn to cash in her chips. Paul has proved that his water belongs to the tribe and the water, the tribe deserves his water and he deserves yep. the tribe. He, he's earned his place. Yeah. He's a member of the tribe. Yep. And, and now it's Stilgar time for... has recognized, oh, oh, you are a Sayadina. Yeah. Which is like a person in training to be the spiritual leader. It's, it's almost the equivalent of a reverend mother. Like Reverend Mother Gaius Mohium that we met at well, the Well, the Sayadina is what you do to train to become the Reverend Mother. Right. And he's like, so, la, you know, I have a place for you. Because he goes to talk to her. They get to the next place. She's standing watching the sunrise. And Stilgar comes in and he's like, so, we need to talk about how you bested me. And she's like, oh, like, I didn't want to, I didn't mean anything by that. I don't want to, like, run the tribe or anything. Oh, yeah. And he's like... Well, there's a couple ways we can save face here. And she's and like, oh, you want me to call you out? Yeah, I, you can call me out and for finish For leadership it of the tribe. And finish it. You can marry me. I mean, you're not bad looking, so you could marry me. Or you can become the our Reverend Mother. Because our Reverend Mother is like old as shit. Well, and they, haven't, they haven't gotten that far. Like at this point, I don't even think they're back at Siege Tabor yet. Yeah. He's like, you can call me out. You can no, this is when they're me. on the journey. They're like, they're not quite there. Right, they're, they're, they're close enough that they can like, they'll make it tomorrow. And they could yeah. make it if they went a little further, but day is coming. They have to hide. And they're like, this is when, this is when he has his talk with her. That's like, I know. And she realizes he knows people are listening and he's having this conversation as much for their benefit as right. he is for her. Right. And he basically proposes a solution, which is 
you become Sayadina. You become the Reverend Mother. All you have to do is this one little thing. No big deal. No biggie. Going to be easy. And then you get to be a part of our tribe, too. And because you're, like, separate but equal, we don't have to fight each other. Right. It's separate separate roles, uh, separation of responsibilities in the leadership of the tribe. I got the sense that he didn't convey to her ahead of time what it, about being coming the Reverend Mother. No, because they take their culture for granted. He just says... You can be like, you can call me out and take over leadership of the tribe. You can marry me, which might be fun. Yeah. Could uh, be fun. Or you can become a Sayadina and you move laterally into a spiritual leadership position. Yeah. And she's like, okay, I'll be a Sayadina. And they know about the Bene Gesserit and they know that a lot of the the Sayadina Reverend Mother stuff is parallel with the Bene Gesserit. And so she's already basically qualified to be a Sayadina. Yeah. And it's like that. So that would be like an easy move for her to do. So that's why it's like it, it's the second best option. Yeah. Uh, it's the least worst option. So the the worst option is calling him out and killing him. The yeah. the second best option for him is uh, her becoming Sidina. Yeah, yeah. So she's like, okay, I'll be Sidina. Yeah, that sounds fine. And so they're all gonna they're gonna bring the Reverend Mother to the siege, which is, she's so brittle. This is her last journey. So yeah. this has got to work out. And they're all the entire siege. Their city is moving south. Because the Harkonnens are on a rampage. Yeah. So they got to do this now. Yeah. And so they bring her out. And this is when we get our our first look at kind of the depth of the spice technology in the way that the kind of accepted Lonsrod community has their um, their Mentats and their Bene Gesserits and their accepted use of spice as a consciousness expanding thing. The Fremen have their own way of using it, and they have had this way of using it for generations and generations and for far longer than any other culture because they actually use the spice or like a derivative of the spice. As a building material. As a material for a component. transferring memory, actual physical memory. Oh, oh, yes. The yeah. Reverend Mother ceremony. So the Reverend Mother is not just the Reverend Mother. She is every previous Reverend Mother that has ever existed. Whether it was from oral tradition, far enough back that they didn't have the spice, all the way to now where they use the spice to transfer memory. And not only that, but because they live in such close proximity with the spice, all of the Fremen are on a certain level psychically linked. Right. And Paul <clears throat> Paul notices slash acknowledges that they all have some latent ability for like what he has, like his yeah. time sense um, that's been enhanced by the spice. Right. Is that they've been on Arrakis so long and like so aggressively bred that they are, or I guess, so aggressively selected by the environment yeah. that they have literally like evolved, like adapted their biology has adapted to the environment so much that they are 
the equivalent of like force sensitive. Right. An entire planet of force sensitive people. Right. Yes. And so what Jessica ends up having to do is take in this water. And at this point, we don't know what this water is. It's this water that she has to be get, that she's given. And she realizes it's a poison and she has to change it. It's and, a poison and a drug. Right. Because, well, once she changes it, it becomes a drug. So right. she changes it. And it be and she gives them just a drop of this catalyst that she creates. And so she ends up changing all of that water. Right. She basically spits it back in. Yeah. And this is all dependent on the, I think Chani calls it like the inner awareness or yeah, something like that. Yeah, she has to be able to identify the, the poison in her body. It's the body control yeah. that the Bene Gesserit have cultivated. This is something that the Mentats don't do. Right. This is something that's a skill that's specific to the Bene Gesserit where they are so in tune with their body. They are so aware of their body and they are so in control of every aspect of how their body operates that she can inspect molecular structures yeah. using her body. And then, Oh, I need to change this molecule in this way and Paul kind of explains it later when he does it that he makes his body produce specific compounds to respond to it. Yeah. And change it. Right. And so. Like an she, immune reaction. Yes. Like a forced immune reaction. Yes. And that immune reaction in turn changes all the water in these jugs. Right. It's a cascading reaction. Right. And it also is a concentrated dose of the spice. So it gets her way, way high. Like high enough she can literally touch the mind of the other Reverend Mother. And the other Reverend Mother can pass all of that knowledge to her. Well, I think it's part of the specialty of it is that the process of doing the transformation, transforming this poison into the drug has separate side effects for the person doing it, as well as all of the extra training that uh, she's gone through as a Bene Gesserit gives her more capacity to um, react to it. Yeah. So everybody... Yeah, it expands her already expanded consciousness. Right. So it's like... But to the point that... She links with right. other people who have undergone the same right. process. It wouldn't work the same way for someone who wasn't trained. But because she is trained, it enhances her training. In the same way that not every man who got dumped on Arrakis was going to become like prescient. But because Paul had been trained in the way he had been trained, right. it just lubricates the wheels to take him the rest of the way down this road that he's already mostly traveled. And so for the Reverend Mother, it's the same. And so Jessica and the Reverend Mother kind of commune and they she passes on the knowledge of the Fremen. She transfers like or copies her yeah. entire consciousness. All of it. All of her memories into Jessica. But. And that includes. But oh shit. Jessica's pregnant. Oh yeah. And so Paul had noticed in the still tent. Yeah. That Jessica was pregnant. Right. Um, or uh, I don't think he noticed from observing her physically. He saw he knew it, in the it from his future side. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Reverend Mother's consciousness is transferring into Jessica. And she's like, what the fuck? She's like, what? You didn't fucking say anything? And Jessica's like, well, I didn't know. I didn't like, I'm trying to save my son. And she's like, 
oh my God, seriously? And so they end up having to give all of that same knowledge to her baby. So that's how Alia gets what they call preborn. So she gets the not, she's literally born with the total amount of knowledge that her mother has, which is the total and amount of knowledge accumulated by the Fremen Reverend Mothers. For generations, the Reverend Mothers have been passing their entire consciousness and memory into the next Reverend Mother. Yeah. And so Jessica describes it as this tunnel. Yeah. And the deeper you, you go one step into the tunnel, it's uh, Reverend Mother Romalo. Yeah. And you take another step, and it's the Reverend Mother before Romalo. Yeah. And you take another step, and it's like the entire conscious experience of the next Reverend Mother right. back in history, all the way back for thousands of years. Yeah, back to when it was an oral tradition. And that's how we learned that they used to live on like a comfortable planet. And because they were on a comfortable planet, they didn't know how to fight. And they were the Zen Sunni. And so they got they got caught, they got captured, scooped up, and dumped on these other planets, including Seleucus Secundus, which is the emperor's prison planet where he trains the Sardaukar. And then they were taken, they were honed for generations on that planet. Nine generations they stayed there and were sharpened like a knife. And then they were taken from there and to take into other planets, including Arrakis. Right. So and the planet they went to after Seleucus Secundus is, or the second planet after the, in the appendices, there's like the multiple stages of the forced Zensuni Fremen yeah. migration, whatever. And on Raska, I think they discovered this poison drug and their Sayadinas uh, could take that in and transform it and have this whole psychic awakening yeah. transfer of memory and knowledge to the next Reverend Mother. And so when Jessica's looking back, she gets to like this Reverend Mother and that Reverend Mother is like the first in the line. And then the memories of her, her cultural memories are all the oral tradition that had been passed down. Yeah. Yep. And then the the water of life that they find on Arrakis is like a better version of the... What they were already doing. The poison drug liquor that they found on... That they discovered on Raska. Yep. I mean, it's, it's good. And it's basically telling us that the reason they're more badass than the, than the Sardukar is because they have been shaped to be warriors for like dozens of generations, if not more. They didn't just get dumped on Arrakis and had to figure it out. And that's what made them like. They had already been shaped. They had already been prepared to become this almost unstoppable fighting force. And then they were put on a planet that is even harder to survive. Then the Emperor's prison planet. And so and they explain later that Seleucus Secundus is um, Shaddam's prison planet. It's the seat of House Carino. Yeah. And nobody knows exactly where the Sardukar come from. Uh, but some, um, let's see, Fenring gives some hints. And then some other people talk about it. And they explain this 
way of doing it where, okay, you take a whole bunch of people and you put them in a really harsh environment and the weak ones get killed and they acknowledge that the like death rate of prisoners on Seleucus Secundus is high, really high, really high. And so only the strongest survive just living there. And then from the survivors, you take the strongest and you uh, adopt them into this yeah. and you create Sardaukar a, culture right. and you create this say, you create fiercely culture, loyal, yeah. um, highly resilient fighting force that has you know, whatever horrible training you could put them through it's not as bad as what they had to go through just to survive. Yeah. And Arrakis is even harder to survive on than Seleucus Secundus. Yeah. And so the Fremen, after she's changed this water of life, she's how, figured out how to save Alia through all of this. And then they all do what anybody would do when given a giant jug full of psychotropic drug, which is, hey... Let's all get high and have an orgy. Right. Romalo tells Jessica, She's like, let, let them, them have, them have their, orgy. their orgy. Like, life's hard enough. And they all become, like, slightly psychically connected. Yeah. And it's real, real fun. And Paul's like, Chani comes to Paul. Yeah. And she's like, here, have some. And he's like, I really don't want to. You know what? I already be feel like I'm tripping balls. I don't want anymore. Thanks ever so much. He recognizes what it is and that... If he has some, it will like untether him yeah. from the now. And he's not quite comfortable with doing that. He doesn't want to get lost. He's like, everybody else is just tripping balls, having a great time. Yeah. I am going to be untethered from my physical body. Yeah, I could lose and my entire consciousness. into yeah. the open future and forced to see <laughs> the entire landscape of possibility. Yeah. Chani, you don't know what you're asking. Yeah. And she's like, no, no. Can you do it for me? Yeah, it's cool. And I'll he's be like, right here. Okay, Chani, for you. I know. He's like, <laughs> all right, fine. But she does take him out. She takes right. him out so because that he won't be sharing with everybody. recognizes that He's not comfortable with th and that. Also, there's something. What off. would it do to everyone if they shared oh, yes. in his consciousness? Because she's close to him. Yeah. I think she's had some, and so she, when she gets close to him, she can see what he's seeing. Yeah, and she's like, "Oh, uh, I gotta get you would, out of here." This yeah. would bring down the whole tone of the room. Yeah, <laughs> you're um, bringing the mood down, man. I gotta <laughs> get you out of here. We're gonna get you some distance. Yeah, um, and and like. I can handle what what you're putting down. Yeah. But and not everybody else. Right. So just me and you. We'll have this special moment. This will be a bonding experience for us. Yeah. And like I think she can see his vision of her through his future sight. Right. And so now she knows, oh, we're faded mates. Yeah, we're faded mates. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, we're, we've been together. I've lived an entire lifetime with you already. Multiple we, lifetimes. We've held hands. We've caressed in the siege. We've we've sat on the like rock and watched the sunrise. Like We have lived a life. We have had a child. 
I and have he, told you of the waters of my home world. Yeah, and he tells her, you're always going to be the strong one, so please don't leave my side. And she goes, don't worry, Muad'Dib, I won't. And that's the end of part two, is we've finally gotten, we, we introduced all the pieces in part one, we moved all the pieces into position in part two. And now... Now it's time for endgame. Yeah. Yeah, now it's time for all of the strategy that we set up in the first two to come to fruition. And that's part three, The Prophet, which we will talk about in the third part of our Dune book series. So as a follow-up to this section of the book, yeah, uh, Rachel and I, Rachel had asked me like where I was in the book. And so I was just summarizing the parts that I'd recently read. And so I was kind of reviewing like high level, what, what is the Fremen culture like and what are the, what are the significant you know, features of this society in the greater world, the, the, this universe? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like the Aiel in the Wheel of Time. Uh, yeah, it's and, exactly like the Aiel in the so Wheel I, of Time. Wait, wait, I, this is a spoiler alert. If you haven't read the Wheel of Time, just go ahead and end the episode right now. We're not going to talk about Dune too much anymore. But this is a big spoiler for like a lot about what happens to the Aiel and where they came from. So... Get out while you still can. Yeah, you can we're not going to discuss anything else about Dune. Yeah. But I, I wanted to explicate this a little bit. Yeah. No, go for it. And just the number of parallels. So if you haven't read The Wheel of Time, um, you can just finish here. Go to the next right, episode. Yes. Um, but if you don't mind some spoilers about Wheel of Time or uh, you want to hear my... <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> My whole spiel on, on the similarities. Uh, keep listening. Mm -hmm. So you have this society that lives in the desert, and they are extremely well adapted to the desert, physically and culturally. They are a warrior culture that is extremely disciplined. Water is the most valuable resource, but they also have all of this prophecy. Yep. About a person that will come and lead them into a like revolution. A time of plenty. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you mean the Fremen? We're talking about the restore, Fremen, right? <laughs> he'll restore uh you know the waste. Yeah. The the, the desert land into a vital growing place. And this entire culture was founded um, to be the personal army for this person that comes that will lead them to the promised land. Mm. Mm. And this person knows the mythology, knows the, um, the miracles that they have to fulfill. Yeah. He and will know their ways as if born to them. Oh uh, no! He, so, I'm. The parallel is yeah, Randall yeah, Thor. You. No, no, I get uh, where you're going. I was just making a joke. Yeah, oh, okay. that Randall yeah. Thor is Paul Muad'Dib. Right, he has yeah. to go through trials. Yeah, where he experiences himself out of time, and <laughs> <laughs> and learns the entire past of this culture, mm. and then, um, spoiler alert for the next Dune books, uh, leads this purpose-built army 
honed over centuries to take over like millennia. hostile honed over millennia honed over millennia yeah uh leading them to a hostile overthrowing of the entire rest of the continent or universe yeah yep and they also came from a culture that was just a regular culture yeah a peaceful culture in a soft land yeah that then experienced trauma to which their reaction was no one will ever be able to do that to us again yeah 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 and hmm hmm this is what i'm talking about frank herbert shaped his genre yeah and uh, i realized wow i didn't realize how much robert jordan just lift and shift yeah he was like (laughs) just scratched out fremen and wrote Aiel. They even have of all of this like Arabic reminiscent language. terminology, yeah. language. Wow. Yep. Very, very accurate. It's the same way that like well, Tolkien effectively invented like elves and dwarves. The modern, the, the modern representation of elves and dwarves. Yeah. The way we see them now is basically yeah. what he created. So. Yeah, and before that, there were lots of little folk, lots of mythology about little people, elves and dwarves and whatever, but they were all different all across the world. Right. And he just made one interpretation of them that everybody was like, oh, this is, this is on point. Yeah. This is what we're going to run with. So for more pithy insights, please join us in part three, The Prophet. Which will be coming out next week. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what the release schedule is. I, you don't have any part of this. So don't maybe me. I, I, you just help, show I helped up. you, you talk. draw out all the, you did. the you items did. in the, you did. the deep cut. You did. You show up, you talk, you have a good time, and then you let me do all the rest of the work. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I don't, I mean, this is my full-time job. Yeah. As, as well, however you want to take that. This is what I do for fun. So it's fine. It's your hobby. Um, it's my hobby. So yeah, that this is the end of part three of the... Part two. Part two. Sorry. You got me all off. Okay, let me start off. Over. So this is a wrap on part two. So for more pithy, uh, for more pithy commentary on Dune, please tune into part three of the Dune book, which will conclude the book. And then we'll be off to the races talking about all the movies, which I am absolutely stoked about because... I did not know how absolutely off the rails Jodorowsky's Dune was going to be. And I now feel existential dread that I live in a world where it didn't come to fruition and I don't get to just go watch a 14-hour long Dune adaptation that has uh, Salvador Dali Salvador as Dali Punisha and Bruce Shaddam IV. Yeah, so if you're intrigued by that, and, and I hope Mick you are. And Jagger as <laughs> Fade. Listen, save it for the pod. We are going to talk about that and more when we finally get to the adaptations. But we got one more part of Dune to get through. And I'm looking forward to talking about it because it's really where most of the action in the novel happens. Yep. So tune in next week and we'll be talking about that. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye. Bye.